Avast ye mateys. While transmitting high atop of Florida's peninsula at 108 feet, this is Alpha Mike broadcasting from the legendary place where pirates were born. Today we feature episode 122 and the title Hell's Angels. The government has called this group of motorcycles club activists a criminal organization. They have presented quite an elaborate case against this motorcycle group within its history and especially with RICO. And as we we discussed in our last episode, Rico, we're not talking about a person. We are talking about the Racketeering Influence Corruption Organization Act and how the government uh, went after this group as well. We'll talk about the history, the group's leader, their intel operation, what the government charges they do, and uh, how many clubs are they under this one patch or one uh, organization? We're also going to talk about the lifestyle of the outlaw motorcycle gang. Now, the last time you guys were here, we discussed the lineup. So we're going to look at, at, during the intro, we're going to look at our current lineup all the way up into the first week of March going to talk a little bit about uh, some updates that we're doing on the website and the first news articles that are going to be coming out in January of 2020. So we got a lot, like I always like to say, on the on the agenda, so we need to get to it. So without any other holdups, we are going to go to the word of the week. And seeing fig trees by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Matthews 21 verses 18 and 19. And of course, if you want to know more about the word that we read during episode 122, you can follow us on RaiderCopNation.com. Look up, test everything, and there you will find this uh, more elaborate um, details about this uh, this uh, verse. Now, again, this is a three-part series. This would be the second part of the three-part. And um, pretty good ratings on the last one. So we're looking forward to challenging you on this one as well. Remember, Test Everything 1521 is the powerful word of God. Less than 15 minutes for your life. So it's not going to weigh you down, but it is going to give you enough food and for nourishment. So we look forward to that. All right. Now, we are going to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, before we do our main uh, intro, we're going to be talking a little bit about the organization of uh, Radar Cop Nation, Radar Cop Podcast, Radar Cop News, and everything else that's kind of lined up. But let's start off with uh, some good news and the numbers on Raider Cop podcast are soaring they're going uh, extremely high I recently posted on um, the Facebook page of Raider Cop podcast some of the numbers that were going up and I usually after I post you know we'll, we'll post on it used to be Wednesday morning six or seven we'd uploaded and out it went and 
It goes through that Apple Podcast series of events. And uh, then it's sent out to all the other mediums and so forth. So probably about 12 o'clock in the afternoon, bing, everybody has it. So we started also uploading it a little earlier. We started putting in some other time zones based on the analytics that we look at on um, our Podbeam streamer. And uh, we said, you know what? Let's uh, tap into the early morning folks here and that part of the world. So we started uh, sending it out Tuesday real late at night, uh, one, two o'clock in the morning. And it goes into the podcast, Apple Podcasts, and it's streamed out. You might get it at 8 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Time, on uh, Wednesday. But uh, it's been received across the uh, ocean at an early morning aspect. And, uh, and, and so it kind of gelled out for us. The numbers started really going up. So... Later on, after we post, or it's posted in the evening, I'll go ahead and take a look at some of the analytics before I load test everything 1521. And uh, I saw these numbers, and it, and it kept on going like, like a ticket machine. Tick, 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 tick. And I go, what is this thing, broken or something? No, folks, it wasn't broken. We are on the up and up. And just like I said on uh, Facebook's uh, Radio Cop Nation podcast uh, site that uh, we I'm extremely humbled by the amount of uh, audience that we are building and amazed as well too so always uh, be humbled I, I believe that firmly people's times are valuable it said so in the Bible and we're going to be discussing that in the future too on test everything 1521 and for you to share your limited time on this earth with us means a lot. So now, with that being said, let's go into our uh, lineup that we have up until the first week of March. It's probably not going to change. I hope it doesn't. As I've always said, sometimes we have in, uh, kind of issues with the co-host and their schedule, so we might have to juggle things around. But it looks pretty firm as of now. So after this uh, episode 122, Hell's Angels, we are going to have uh, January 22nd, episode 123, Bail Reform. Ha <laughs> ha. That is the title, a part of our sidebar issue uh, series. And then January 29th, episode 124, we have our first guest of the week, and that's Mr. Fields. And uh, be the solution and not the problem. And uh, he will be with us on uh, January 29th. And of course, uh, Mr. Fields is uh, Mr. Uh, Eugene Fields Jr., a retired Baltimore police officer, a motivational speaker, author, and a great motivator. And he's going to tell us a lot of things that he's been doing that uh, I've been seeing, and I am truly impressed. So having Mr. Fields here with us today on uh, January 29th, I mean, is going to be quite an honor. Uh, episode 125, uh, that's coming in February 5th, and that's going to be the commission case. And that's going to follow up probably our last La Costa Nostra series for a good while that I can tell you episode 126 February 12th and that's going to be what I had promised since last year on episode 109 we had touched on the club some people wanted to know a little bit more about it they had some specific questions the audience and emails and I said well in lieu of just giving another part two so fast I would expand on episode 109, the club, every five to ten minutes before an episode, all the way into, up until the end of the year, which for us was uh, the 25th of December, I believe. 
And then I was going, I had said I'd do a full 45 minutes on that subject, put it together in a nice package, and that will be on February 12th, The Club. And uh, February 19th, we have uh, OT off-duty monitoring. And the importance of that, it's part of our roll call series. Of course, the roll call series is the day-to-day operations, episode 127. Episode 128 will be Coffee with the Cop, Thinking Out of the Box series. And we want to kind of look at why is that going on? Why? What is the deal with this Coffee with the Cop thing? Well, February 26th, you can tune in and you'll hear what's going on with that. And March 4th, we have It's Time to Merge Federal Law Enforcement, Episode 129, and that's Think Out of the Box series. And that's going to be a very interesting one, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. So that looks like our lineup all the way up until the first week of March, and then we will start putting uh, together some other um, scheduling on, on the Radio Cop Nation and uh, po- podcast uh, website so you can follow along. All right, now, <clears throat> we touched on that. Now we're going to touch on this uh, newsletter thing. Our first newsletter is going to come out probably by the end of the month, and it's going to have about three articles. It won't be long. Now, I'm not the best writer grammatically. Okay, probably get my thought across. But uh, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of mesh current events in law enforcement and kind of piggy bank on an article and then either talk about what was missing on that article or expand on what was good about that article. So we're going to give that a try. And uh, we're going to start small. So uh, don't expect... uh, you know, 463 pages on your first newsletter, but we'll give it a shot, and we'll and we are looking forward to that. Uh, also, not to uh, let people forget, because how can you forget? This is 2020, a new year. You heard our new intro when you came in. I love it, and uh, it's more of a theme of what we're. Uh, kind of forecasting and as well as our logo our logo is new for 2020 as well that's now some people are confused oh wait a minute you got one logo on the website you got another logo. okay here you go if it says raider cop podcast we're talking about yes the podcast and if it says raider cop nation We're talking about everything, the nation itself, which is the podcast, the newsletter, the soon-to-be-coming YouTube in 2021, and putting all that together. So when the nation is that, all of it together, and the podcast is the podcast, okay? And uh, what else am I forgetting? Probably a whole bunch of stuff, but I'll remember it soon enough. All right, without any further ado, it's time to round up the clowns and start episode 122, Hell's Angel. and I had gotten free tickets to go to the New York Coliseum where they had the car show and I 
went to the front of the entrance. But when we got there, we were told, no, 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 this is for vendors. You got to go through the back. And um, so I proceeded to go to the back with uh, my guest. And as we're walking back there, I see the, the you know side door open. I see an entourage of people going in there. They might have been about six or seven. And, uh, but I, we were still at a distance. We kind of, you know, hustled to get there because I saw it when the door closed. I don't want to be banging on it. But we didn't get there in time. The door just kind of slowly creeped closed. And I tapped on the door. And uh, it slowly opened again. And there he was. He proceeded to open the door slowly and while having another conversation. So he did two things at one time. And I said, oh, I think this is the wrong entrance or something similar to that. And he said, ah, you're right. Come on in, kid. And I walked in, and there was a security guard there. And I kind of showed him the past that we had. And he said, yeah, yeah whatever. You can just come in. And we proceeded to walk in as we were following behind an entourage of Hell's Angels. And the one that was holding the door and opened the door as we got in there and said, you know, you're at the right place, kid. You can come on in. Was none other than the legendary retired Hell's Angels, Chuck Cito, or better known as Charming Chuck, went on... Uh, during his uh, time in the Hells Angels to have a security escort company where he escorted a lot of um, actors and famous people, and that was called Charlie's Angels. Get it? So we've got a lot. We, we, you know, we're kind of jumping the gun here and um, on, Chuck, on Chuck. But um, let's, let's break it down. Now, if we go into the history and how they started, we're going back to 1948. And the, the founder of the organization, this is right after the Second World War. A lot of these guys saw themselves as a, um, out of place in society. And they uh, took to riding motorcycles and uh, just forgetting about everything. So uh, Otto Friedley, he was uh, one of the founders, or the founder, 1948 in San Bernardino, California. And um, they kind of got some other gangs or motorcycle clubs that were already uh, established, like the Pissed Off Bastards, they were called. Now, the actual name, Hells Angels, comes from a military aircraft that were used during the world Second World War, and it was a B-17F called, again, it was named Hells Angels. Now, Howard Hughes actually did a movie on this in 1930, um, portraying the plane and so forth. Uh, the actual plane uh, was uh, not only named the Hells Angels, it's assigned to the... Uh, 358th Bombardment Squadron and the 303 Bombardment Group uh, during the Second World War, the 8th Air Force. It returned back to the United States uh, after service in that war on December 13, 1943, and it was scrapped. The plane was actually scrapped on August 14, 1945. So there's where the name it comes from. Later on, um, there is a logo. It's a smaller logo than the one you see today. And that logo, the one that you're currently seeing now, was actually created in 1953. There's a lot of um, heartache over that history. Who did it and, and uh, who created it and some myth mythical stuff about that. But uh, it did come from Northern California in the San Francisco um, chapter, 
where they created the larger logo <coughs> or the larger um, patch, and that was called a barger larger. And um, the reason for that is that the original one was very small, so they made it bigger, more uh, symmetric to the actual jacket that they were wearing. Uh, they pretty much from 48 all the way into the 60s, California doing their thing, having runnings once in a while with local police. They are regarded as riffraff. We'll use that term during this era. Now, one of the things that they decided to do in the 60s and the 70s is create a legal barrier around the group because of what they were saying, police harassment. So you didn't have road scholars and you didn't have a bunch of millionaires running the club. These were nine to five guys, blue collar workers, didn't make a lot of money. They had families, believe it or not. And so now they had to figure out how they were going to start providing these legal funds, you know, legal costs with the lawyer. The lawyers, they'll drain you. So this has been the argument of the criminal justice system. Is it the group that made this call or was it individual members? Well, today it's individual members because the government has ceased to prove that the entire group is a criminal organization. Now, the government has made that allegation, and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Now, the 60s and 70s, one of the ways that they found out that they can make some real quick bundle of cash is in the drug business. And they really got into the drug business, not just like any other criminal group where they were middlemen from one point to another point. That wasn't necessarily how they got started. They got started actually learning the craft. And during the 60s, they learned from a chemist by the name of uh, Ashley Bear Stanley. And this chemist was friends of a Hells Angel member at the time by the name of George Witherin. And he later becomes a confidential informant too. But he basically taught him uh, through, you know, the chemistry on how to create uh, methamphetamines, LSD, and so forth. Now, they needed a large supply of material. And so they, this is how effective they, this group became. Where other criminal organizations really die out in a local area, let's say maybe even a state area, they had branched out. They had people all over the world almost, although their charters were not global as they are today, they still had a huge connection. That's one of the things about the Hells Angels, that they have a huge connection base. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But they uh, reached out to individuals out of Australia, and they needed huge amounts of supplies that they could easily transport from Australia to the United States because it was very difficult to obtain uh, some of the stuff that they needed to produce the amount of meth and LSD and all that that they were going to uh, start consuming. Well, or producing, not consuming. So uh, at one point, they become so good on it and, and some of their creations that you might have heard the term angel dust. And there's where it comes from. It comes from them and their laboratories in producing this stuff. They uh, became very good and adept not only in producing it with several laboratories, 
but transporting it in the network of distributing it as well. And then you had the last phase, which would have been uh, money laundering and stuff like that. So uh, they're on a crusade in the 60s and 70s to make money, produce money. A lot of these guys jumped in uh, head first because not only did they see it as an opportunity to make money, but they also saw it as an opportunity to get back into the action. A lot of these guys who just got out of the war and, you know, it was adventurous. You had to not only create the stuff and do the routes and all that. And money was plentiful during this time. Now, some members did know how to camouflage it. Some didn't. You know, some were just buying elaborate, you know, brand new cars and, and you know, things that they had. It obviously, was a telltale sign they um, were into something. But that happens to any group of individuals that never had anything, and all of a sudden you give them all this money. You know, they're, they're going to live the life they never have. So there's nothing wrong with that. Now we, we go into 1974. They're, as I said, they're learning from this chemist, and they're really bringing the stuff in from Australia. They're now in the mid-'70s, just starting to take off to another a realm. But the feds are in on it, too, as far as chasing them and the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, FBI as well, are starting to produce cases. Shortly after, after 1974, arrests are coming down left and right. One of the arrests, they arrested up to 79 pounds of meth and $2 million was just laying around. That goes to show you at that time, $2 million was a lot of money. And um, it goes to show you that they were very good at what they were doing. Now, when you start doing in the uh, this drug business, they, other things come with it, such as uh, arms. One of the things they're highly sophisticated in individuals in the, in the group are uh, transporting and selling firearms, uh, illegal firearms, and um, murder for hire, and the list goes on according to the government. They go on to create a security in intel group that they really need. Uh, and the reason for this is, you know, you're dealing with all this dope and, and, and you're dealing with uh, lines of transportation. Now, a lot of what the Hells Angels are creating now is a a, a page right out of the mafia's book on prohibition during the prohibition era the mafia made millions of dollars uh, transporting alcohol and the speakeasies and stuff like that well people wanted a drink in turn because of that was illegal at the time the mafia made a lot of money so they're basically ripping that those pages right out of the book but now it's not alcohol. It's uh, they're into the drug business and the gun business and all the other businesses that attract a lot of attention. They create this security officer position in these chapters. Now the security officer uh, had the responsibility of securing the chapter and the club of any law enforcement activities and, of course, any enemy activities as well because they had a list of enemies. And so what they did uh, effectively, these security officers, they got the latest toys, you know, bugging devices, um, devices to let them know, cameras, uh, you name it, they were into it. And... That system became more and more complex as they started to get more and more into what they were doing. The had they had their own code system. Now back then, for the young millennials, won't know this stuff, but 
they didn't have cell phones. People had actual phone with cord on it in their homes. If you needed to get in contact with somebody that was on the road, you had to use a pager. You had to beep them, and you put in a number. That number appeared on their beeper, and they went ahead and called you from a payphone, of course. Now, to uh, be careful of law enforcement, maybe intercepting some of these signals or stopping them and taking the pager off them and seeing the numbers, they used a system that, of course, is obsolete today, but the uh, plus two, minus two system. So if I put in, like, let's say the number five in a beeper, the code system of the day or the week, whatever the security officer had deemed, would be minus two or plus two. So if I uh, put in five and it's, we're in a mi- minus two week, then it's really three. So that's just to give you an idea on how they use that. The other thing that they did was they uh, had not only the elaborate communication system, they had uh, what they call all, you know the old ladies that hang out in the clubs and uh, again, as a 1% club, and we're going to get into that in a second, they basically treat women like property. So one of the things that these uh, old ladies were told to do was as soon as their intel found out that, let's say, the National Narcotics Association was having a convention at a specific hotel and it's nine months, six months away still, they would have the old ladies go, several of them now, there's not going to be one or two, there's going to be a bunch of them, and apply for jobs, especially in housekeeping. Because what that would do for them is when these uh, law enforcement officials came in for their conference, maybe, you know, the week long, they were going to be there. You had to have room service, gave them the access to enter the room and see what was lying around, and they would obtain info from a lot of those systems. So they uh, operated also with a lot of syndicates and criminal organizations like the mafia. There is no secret about that at all. Now, let's just backtrack a little bit. We talked about the creation 1948, and they start the group. Now, the group is really formatted in a paramilitary structure, of course. You have president, you have vice president, you have sergeant at arms. You might have some other um, organizational structures like treasurer and so forth. But what they basically have other, like we talked about the security officer. Now, if you want to join, you just can't go down to your local Hells Angel chapter, knock on the door and say, I'm here to join. Well, you could and you couldn't. Let me explain. Now, we know in the mafia, you can't go down to the social clubs and say, I want to be a mob member. That'll get you a good beating. That, that because, uh, the mafia doesn't exist. Here, this club exists. The one percenters don't deny that their existence. For crying out loud, they're wearing a jacket with a name and a logo on it. So that is separate and apart to what we're talking about when you look at this in a criminal justice uh, standard. So if you wanted to be a member, you needed first to subscribe to the one percent lifestyle. Now, where did that come from? Well, uh, during in the early, in the mid-40s or late 40s, the hooligans were running around with motorcycles, making noise, causing trouble. And uh, the American Motorcycles Association said, well, you know, these guys are just 1% because in actuality, 99% of motorcyclists are law-abiding citizens. And there's where the one percenter came. Today, you have to really acknowledge, is one percent still in the game, or is that, is that number grown up considerably? But no, you have to be a one percenter. You got to live the outlaw lifestyle. 
you know, no rules barred and uh, yeah, off you go. And, uh, you know, they are the ones that do it for the part-time thing. You know, they put on the jacket and they ride the motorcycle over the weekend and that's it, Mo you know, Monday through Friday, back to uh, to doing uh, the, the daily routines, the job or whatever they have to do. But that's not a one percenter. That's not an outlaw. Outlaw lives by this and uh, dies by this. So you have to subscribe to that in order to become a member. Then you're probably going to know how to ride a mo motorcycle because if you don't, you're not getting in either. And it's got to be a Harley. You can't show up at a Kawasaki. That's not going to work. And the other thing is you really got to understand how these guys are. Okay, that's very important. You'll be a prospect, and that's what they'll call you, You or hang around. You'll be six months, uh, eight months, a year. There's no really length of time, but you're at their bank and call of the members. And... Uh, you do provide a bunch of services for them, and you know whether it's uh, security, whether it's cleaning the club, whether it's uh, shining motorcycles. You're at the bank and call of the members for that given period of time until they give you the cut or the colors and say you're a member. So there is. Another thing is when they ride, you know, you, you'll have uh, the road captain, then you have the president, and everybody's in a, in, in a specific pecking order. There's just not everybody roaming around. They ride very tight, okay, and very fast, They're going at excessive miles an hour, and where normal or, or people that are motorcyclists might not feel safe doing so it's their lifestyle, and that's what I said. You have to subscribe to it, and that's the outlaw lifestyle. So we want to take a little pause, and, you know, I'm telling you a little bit about the group, and I want you to know how do you become a member, okay? Now, of course, with that being said, a lot of the members, you know, the, living the outlaw lifestyle don't really respect law all that much. So you're going to have a criminal element in the group. But as I said before, the government has always dragged on proving without a reasonable doubt that they are a criminal entity. They've tried, but it hasn't really worked. All right, so we move on uh, down. Uh, 1979, uh, October 4th, 1979, the Justice Department brings a RICO case against the Hells Angels. Now, the case is going to be tried in federal district court in San Francisco, and they're going to arrest Sonny Barger, which is the president of the Oakland chapter uh, of the Hells Angels and one of the movers and shakers. Now, the way it was, there is no national president. They say it themselves, but the media kind of likes to label Sonny as the national president. He's been around since ever. He is in his 80s. And obviously he is what one percenters call a legend. But uh, there is no national leader per se. But at the time of this RICO indictment, he is the president of the Oakland chapter, which is probably one of the most powerfulest chapters during this time frame of the Hells Angels. Now, they had the Hells Angels separated in two groups, east and west at the time, east of the of the Mississippi and west, and Sonny kind of running things on the west side and on the east side, there was a Hells Angel member by the name of Sandy Alexander. Now, the New York City Hells Angels patched in 1969. I believe the club that they patched over, and we'll explain that in a minute, was called the Aliens or something similar to that. And Sandy Alexander was a member of that group. Now, a patch over is when the bigger group, and in this case is the Hells Angels, wants to bring in a smaller group into their organization as a chapter. They'll patch them over in different um systems. First, you get the bottom rocker. Now, the jacket 
has a bottom rocker where the state top rocker, of course, the name of the club, and you've got the insignia or the logo of the patch in the middle. Well, the first thing that uh, these patch over clubs are, they got to lose their identity, their colors. Out they go. Then you patch in slowly, starting with the bottom rocker. And as time uh, develops, you eventually get the full jacket. And that's a patch over, and that's what happened uh, with the Hells Angels in New York City in 1969. Led by Sandy Alexander, as I said, he was also a stuntman in the movie business, boxer, and um, he basically molded um, the New York City Hells Angels and a lot of the Hells Angels in the East Coast. So he had East Coast, West Coast. And during this indictment in 1979, the government just fails to prove the case. Simple as this. They go back, because it's a RICO case, 10 years. So they're going back to a probably 1970, 1971. And they're saying, you know, the two predicted predatic acts that they need for a RICO case, they take down an immense amount of laboratories, weapons during these indictments, millions of dollars are confiscated, methamphetamine was in one case, the FBI and and uh, the ATF and all them, they basically put up uh, put together a case where the Hells Angels were moving, was estimated one metric ton of met, or 2,200 pounds. That, at that time, we're talking in the 70s, had a street value of $166 million. Today it would be a lot more. Their math was so uh, good because they learned the craft from a chemist and they were very good at it that the federal government was testing it at 100% of meth. They were, you know, they really knew their craft in that regard. But this RICO case goes 10 months, cost the government $3 million, and the end result to get a hung jury. And they had a lot of evidence. But where they messed up is that they had to prove that the entire group is criminal entity. Now, where it blows up in their face is because they're making all these allegations and the jury's listening, the group, the group, the group. But uh, they, they, their lawyers are very good, you know, bringing in members that have got nine to fives. And when you're in the jury and you look over at the, you know, the defendant's tables and you see all these guys with long hair and haven't shaved in weeks and, you know, they look a little raggedy, folks. This ain't a, you know, mafia trial with John Gotti and, He's got a $5,000 suit on and, and a Rolex. So it lost in translation to the jury, hung jury, and uh, it kind of, they had, the government had a race to basically start charging people with state crimes and any, you know, like, you know, you did this crime. And forget the RICO. They, they, they took the gloves off for RICO. And as we had stated, this is actually probably the second uh, biggest RICO case the government took on, and, and it failed for them. As a result, today, a lot of these uh, motorcycle clubs, are their defense is that uh, the club is a motorcycle club. It is uh, licensed as that. They pay dues. They ride motorcycles. They are specific on the type of motorcycle you have to ride. And that's it. Now, within the structure of that group, there are some people that are criminals. They don't have anything in their bylaws that say that they have to do criminal checks for you to get in. So, therefore, the government continues to fail and prove. Now, in the Mongol case, and we, we brought that up in that podcast, Mongols Defending America, it's mind-boggling, and, I, and I'll continue to say it. Here's one, uh, I'll give you two elements that the government has to prove. They need to provide the entire list of every Mongol member, 
or ifs and buts about it. And then they need to put the RICO case together, you know, the two predicate acts and go back, who did what, okay? Then you could say you got it. But if the government has to stutter because there might be members they don't know who are members, then it's not the entire group. So to say because you wear a specific patch, uh, you are part of a criminal entity and they can take that patch. Remember in our last episode, Rico, we talked about the federal government not only went up against the Catholic Church, they also went up against police departments. And that's seizing their patches. So the patch thing is a little bit crazy also because you got to defend your uh, your logo. Now, getting into that, the intellectual properties, the Hells Angels have defended their logo with fierceness. They have a huge legal process or, or resource and they will protect their logo at any cost. You put anything that's uh, Hell's Angel orientated on the internet, you can expect to get very quickly a cease and desist order to bring that stuff down before they go into your wallet. Now, some notable companies that have been sued by the Hell's Angels for using the name and the logo have been um, the uh, Disney Company, Disney Movies, in a movie they did called Wild Hogs. They used the name and the logo, and uh, the Hells Angels sued, and Disney uh, took out the name and, and the logo from the movie and so forth. Toys R Us uh, got sued as well, Saks Fifth Avenues, with something called Zapatos sneakers, and apparently they were using the Death Head-type logo on the sneaker. And um, so if you, you fool around with the logo or anything like that, you know, they're very, very defensive of that stuff. 1984 rolls around. The Olympics decide to go to Los Angeles, and, that, of course, that brings federal attention. And the ATF now wants to roll the Hells Angels with that they are sympathetic to a terrorist group. Now, this was very insulting to the Hells Angels, which by and large always portray themselves as being patriotic. So the Hells Angels, what they did, they kind of reversed it on the ATF. Now, let me tell you what the FDA, the F, um, the ATF was doing. They were going around showing pictures to, you know, local businesses and people like you know, residents and saying, look, let me show you some pictures. And they were showing them pictures of dead bodies, you know, people that died. And they said, well, this is, you know, uh, your local Hells Angels group, and this is the stuff that they do. So if you have any information on the group, we'd appreciate you tell us. And, uh, well, what they were doing, they were going back and telling the local chapters of the Hells Angels, you know, hey, the ATF, man, they got it out for you guys. So they flipped the script, and what they did, they basically uh, became a part of the Olympics by carrying the torch. Of course, the torch is lit in grease, and hopefully you know the, the way it goes. And it's carried through every city until it gets to the hosting city. So the Hells Angels, uh, George Christie, which was the Ventura president, uh, brought in and ran in the uh, torch. So the media portrayed them as, as heroes. Now, that wasn't liked very well by the ATF. And uh, shortly after the Olympics, uh, they, they were having a church, churches, uh, well, a meeting. They call it church. And all of a sudden, in Venturia, California, and all of a sudden they see something fly in through the window of the clubhouse, and it was a grenade. And um, it goes off, you know, big investigation and all this other stuff. But the Hells Angels, remember, they have a very sophisticated security system an intelligence system, they got traces of that uh, report of the dyno, of the grenade and so forth and had uh, investigators, private investigators, that could trace the, the numbers, and they traced it all the way to Ohio. Well, it happened to be that uh, these ATF agents that had it out for them 
were not from California. They were from Ohio. That tells you a lot. 1986, the government uh, creates Operation Rough Rider. They take down the eastern section in the New York City Hells Angels, come up with $2 million in cash and a bunch of drugs. They arrest Sandy Alexander, 38 Hells, An 38 Hells Angels in five different states. So they're attracting a lot of attention. And uh, in that case, I believe it was it was not a 99-yard touchdown either. It was they did score a couple points here and there, but again, it was one of these you were talking a good game, you spent a lot of money, and the results were you know three, four, five years for what they were barking about didn't really equate and um so that was operation rough rider government continues to go after them now today it's the same the government's still going after them at some point they're also now more international and uh, so those governments in, in other countries are going after them as well wars who do they have problems with well the Hells Angels have problems with every group MC out there that's a major player. Oh, but the government likes to call the big four, which is the Hells Angels, the Outlaws, the Banditos, and the Pagans. So they're at war. Anybody that's their size that's competing, they're very aggressive in moving territory. And if they don't plant their chapter in a specific state, they will organize with an MC from that state that will partner up with them as well. We said that they have an elaborate, you know, criminal enterprise as far as networking. They're very good in that syndicate operation. So they're also involved in Hollywood movies. They've been around Hollywood since the 60s. They've been around singers since the 60s. This has really been something very important to them because it legitimizes them somewhat in the public's eye. So they'll have, you know, Mickey Rourke and all of these uh, actors and stuff will really flock to them because everybody likes to be around the bad guy, you know, tough guy. So that's one of the things that attract a lot of people. Now, some of the movies that they have been involved with, uh, stemming back from 1967, Hell's Angels on Wheels, 69, Hell's Angels, and 83, Hell's Angels Forever, uh, Dead in uh, Five Heartbeats, and Son of Ar Arnarchy, which was on, uh, I believe it was uh, A&E, one of those, oh, no, whatever the uh, television station is, I can't remember now. And that um, program ran like five or six seasons. They were involved. A lot of the actors were Hell's Angels themselves. So I want to talk about specifically now as we're running out of time, two people that were one an associate of the Hell's Angels and the other one was an actual Hell's Angels. One uh, is uh, from Paul Mitchell, Paul Mitchell's Shampoos, and John Paul DiGioria, a billionaire, $5 billion he probably has. And um, he openly talks about hanging around the Hells Angels that when he was homeless, when he was 22 years old, he had a good buddy of his that took him in. And, uh, you know, they went to school together. And uh, cover, helped him because he had a child. He was homeless. Uh, the child would stay with the old ladies at the clubhouse while he got some work in. And uh, helped him out tremendously. He does later uh, end up being homeless again when he's 36. But today, John Paul is, uh, you know, he doesn't only have Paul Mitchell, the shampoo, a bunch of other companies totaling up to $5 billion. And we're going to put that information on the show notes. And the last one is Frank Manucci. And now Frank Manucci, and we're going to post his information as well. Uh, Frank did a book called uh, Brother Frank. 
and uh, he's passed away. But Frank uh, lived a rough life. Frank, uh, an early age, around 15, started getting involved with bikers. He was an associate of the Gambino crime family as well. He is an actor. He appeared in several movies, but one of them was Carlito's Way. He plays the guy that's in um, the, uh, he's in jail. He's one of the mob bosses or something, but he's there as well. So, um, and, and then Frank also is a hell's angel. He becomes a hell's angel and then, you know, at the end of his life, he walks away from the hell's angels and be- becomes a Christian and preaching and stuff like that. But thought it was interested and want to post that information on on the website. All right, and the last point that we'll bring up about the hell's angels, a lot, a lot of information in such short time, uh, they currently are in. For you can get the magnitude of this organization, 56 countries, and they have 470 chapters. Wrap your head around that one, my friends. That'll tell you what time it is. They can reach out and touch anybody, any place, at any time. Also, having all those chapters allows them a very interested network that they use very successfully. They are the major player when it comes to outlaw motorcycles, there's no doubt. I know there are other groups that argue, but truth be told, the majority of them are just basically following what the angels have been doing for many, many years. Other groups are just as deadly. Don't get it twisted. But the Hells Angels have their own ethos, and they carry that, and they wear it within that outlaw lifestyle very well and very effectively. What's up next? Well, we, we've we got uh, episode 123. Uh, this was, of course, uh, 122. On 123, and I'm, I'm bringing up the calendar, make sure, because, you know, we make changes here in the women uh, on a drop of a dime sometimes is going to be a bail reform. Ha ha. It's just like that. That's that's the uh, ha ha. And bail reform, January 22nd, and uh, we're going to talk about what the government of New York has done. What a sideshow. And uh, then the list goes on from there. As always, it is my honor and my pleasure to be your host on Radio Cop Nation. Please, Continue to place yourself in prayer first because without you in the game, we have nothing. Continue to pray for your family. Continue to pray for your community. And most importantly, continue to pray for the law enforcement uh, officers that serve you. And very paramount, continue to pray for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike, and I'm out. Until we meet again, God willing.
Walk the plank.